You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mary Fabry, clinical psychologist and director of torture treatment services and international training at the Marjorie Kovler Center of Heartland Alliance in Chicago, Illinois. Today we're going to be discussing torture and its medical implications. Thank you, Dr. Fabry, for joining us today. Thank you. Could you tell me a little bit about the mission of the Marjorie Kovler Center? We're in Chicago, and we provide comprehensive services to torture survivors. And our torture survivors are an international population coming from the continent of Africa, from Latin America, from Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And we provide a thorough assessment, and then based on the assessment, try and find medical care, mental health care, and social services. When did people become aware that there might even be a need for such a center? Well, the torture treatment rehabilitation or the field actually started in the 60s, and it was directly related to a growing international awareness of the kinds of human rights violations that were committed under dictatorships and military regimes. For us here in Chicago, it was the mid-'80s, and it was you know, it was in response to the Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees being resettled in Chicago, and then also the Central Americans who were making their way you know, from Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, due to the civil conflicts in their country. Some of them were seeking political asylum, so the legal field became aware. Others were presenting in emergency rooms or community mental health clinics with very general medical complaints, more somatic complaints, headaches, backaches, stomach aches, general malaise, not really identifying as torture survivors, but as individuals who seemed to have more of a story than they were sharing to the health professional. Could you describe torture as you're using it in in your clinic? We use the United Nations definition of torture. And so it's very important to understand that it happens under the color of law, that individuals are inflicted with pain, suffering, inhumane treatment for the use of punishment to elicit confessions or information or to control a population. But it is under the color of law. In your clinic, is there a gender preponderance? No. Over the 20 years, it's pretty much been 50-50. Last year, it was 50-50. Um, other years, it might be 48-52. But no, it doesn't have any preference. Why am I surprised by that? I mean, I, I thought that you were going to tell me that it's women and children, that the women are the vulnerable, they're the exposed. When you destroy women and humiliate women, you do much more to destroy the fabric of a society. Right. There definitely is a huge awareness about violence against women. But that violence can be through different acts other than torture. We've seen over the years the use of war as having affecting civilian populations much more now in the 20th century than it did in other centuries. You know, oftentimes you think of war, it's soldiers fighting soldiers on the battlefield. But there's been a real shift to focusing on or targeting civilian populations as a way to affect a country. Um, We're seeing that in Iraq with the insurgencies. They're going for public settings. So 
you know, there are these trends to affect civilian populations to impact, as you described, it's sort of the moral fiber, but it's sort of the integrity of families and communities often is through women and the roles they play. But torture is something different than the violence against women. Torture coming under the the color of law often is targeting individuals who have affiliations in political groups, like, say, in Africa, that there's a student movement to promote democracy, and you'll see student demonstrations. Well, they have equal membership, men and women, and so women and men have equal opportunity to be arrested and detained and tortured. So there's a lot of violence in the world today, but if we focus on the use of torture under the color of law, it has different motivations. So bonding, taking advantage of domestic employees, trafficking in women, which I would consider a form of torture, isn't necessarily torture the way we're using it today. Right. It's definitely a crime and perhaps crimes against humanity, but it's not torture according to the United Nations definition. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and my guest today is Dr. Mary Fabry, and we're discussing torture and its medical implications. Do you ever think that torture is a global problem? Oh, it is, and it's at epidemic proportions. If you look at different websites, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the State Department, and do a count of how many countries have documented use of torture, it's more than 150 countries. That's an overwhelming statement. We know the few countries that we see on television. I don't think anybody realizes that it's 150. When somebody comes into your clinic, what are the problems that you are confronted with? If you think about it, most of our clients are seeking political asylum. So they do not access the benefits that a refugee can access through the resettlement process. They're here without an official legal status. They have to apply for asylum within 12 months of arriving in the country or else they lose that right to apply for asylum. In the process of applying for asylum, there's no benefits. In fact, there's costs. It costs, there are fees involved in applying for asylum. And if you don't get it at the first affirmative stage where you have an interview with an asylum officer, you're referred to an immigration court. And at that point, you have to also have an attorney represent you because you're going to be in front of a judge. So there are actually financial costs that come up to individuals who are in this country. Most do not have work authorization, so they're unemployed with no money. Often people come with only the clothes on their back. They have nothing. So we begin at basic needs. Are they eating regularly? Do they have clothes, especially if they're, you know, they're coming from a tropical climate and they're here in Chicago and it's December. It's like, do you have clothing? Do you have a place to sleep? Housing is very difficult. We don't officially say we do housing. Most people that we see are what's called doubling up. They're sleeping on someone's couch that they met in their community. Oftentimes people are in shelters. But they have other basic needs like food and clothing and then health care have 
they've been attended to, their health needs. What are the emotional implications, though, of having gone through the torture experience that they have had? I think over the years, people often think of torture as physical. But what we've seen is a real trend to use psychological torture. One poignant moment for me in working with a gentleman from the Congo was he pulled up his pant legs, you know, just up to the knee, and he showed me these huge scars on his shins. And he said, you know, Mary, these have healed. This wound is healed. You can see the scar. And he tapped on his head and said, never going to heal. So I think the psychological consequences of torture are profound and pervasive, and really that vulnerability exists for people throughout their lifetime. Do you label these people suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome? You know, that's the best working diagnosis we have if you're going to pull out the DSM. So yes, we diagnose some people with post-traumatic stress disorder, some people with depression, major depressive disorder, some people have anxiety, and some people don't. And some people have a combination. Some people don't meet the criteria. I've always been very fond is the word that comes up, but 20 years ago, Judith Herman wrote the book Trauma and Recovery and and described a complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which talks more specifically about the alterations that happens in a person's um, perceptions of the world, perceptions of themselves, which I think better addresses the long-term consequences. Yeah, the worst part of the title has always been post because it intrudes on their life as if it's still happening, just like your client touched his head. It's still happening. Right. Many of us who work in the field talk about traumatic stress because in the torture rehabilitation field, we also talk about what we call the triple trauma paradigm. There's the torture event. There's the flight which is often harrowing, and it's during that time that people are extremely vulnerable to other abuse and exploitation. And then the being here in a new country is traumatic as well. Why doesn't everybody have these kinds of events take place when they go through torture? Not everybody experiences post-traumatic stress. What changes? What do you think separates some of your clients from the people who aren't coming to see you? I don't think it's a question of is someone accessing services or not? You know, when you walk down the street or if you're in a store interacting with someone, a clerk who isn't from the United States, you don't know if they're a torture survivor or not. You don't know if they are suffering from traumatic stress. It's almost a hidden infliction. What we see is people come in and it's in the process of talking with them, asking the questions. I often liken the question about torture in, say, a a medical clinic setting. You don't ask, right? Just like 15 years ago, we didn't ask about domestic violence. If a woman came in with a black eye and said, I fell down the stairs, they just wrote it down. You didn't question it or even plant the seed that you were suspicious about that. Are you making a statement then? Do you think physicians should be asking? You know, for a long time, don't ask, don't tell. We avoided things, uh, even pediatric injuries. Like you say, women came in with a black eye and you wouldn't even ask them. And if they said to you, oh, I bumped into a door, you moved on because you had done your responsibility. Are you saying maybe there's part of the medical community that should be looking further. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think in communities where we have such diverse populations, 
if you can get treatment for torture, the, the physical, but the psychological, if we can provide intervention, I think down the road, we're really going to be saving some money. Because we're seeing in the Cambodian community that over long term, there are studies now being published about later in life in the elderly, high incidence of diabetes, hypertension, cardiac disease that didn't exist. This is new for this community, and it's really felt that it's a result of long-term stress that was has not been addressed. I want to thank Dr. Mary Fabry. She's been our guest, and we've been discussing torture. Dr. Fabry is the director of the Marjorie Kovler Center for the Treatment of Torture. I really appreciate you being with us. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.